All right, Psalm 144. Uh, like I said, last psalm for the Summer of Psalms series. I'm glad we can wrap it up with this one. It's a, it's a really good, good psalm to conclude this series. Um, w- one thing that I think is universally true, actually I know it's universally true, of everyone in this room, of everyone in the world actually, is that we all experience cer- certain degrees of difficulties in life. Trials, troubles, hardships, sufferings, temptations, all these things, it is a part of living as fallen human beings in a fallen world. Um, Whether we are uh, suffering consequences of our own sinfulness or just suffering consequences of being in a sinful world, we all experience hardships. And it seems like I've been been in full-time pastoral ministry for 16 years this year, it's, it's gone by quick. And the 16 years I've been in ministry, I've, I've met with and counseled and worked through lots of things with lots of people. And, and it just is amazing to me how often it seems like when troubles come, when difficulties arise, uh, they don't just come in nice, smooth, even waves, but more like uh, an avalanche of rocks falling on top of someone. And they pile on. And, and rarely, if ever, I don't think there's ever a time when we would say that, that trials come in convenient times. Uh, no one's going to go, well, this would be a great time for me to have a terrible thing happen to me, right? No, no one would say that. But, but it just seems like when, when there's, you know, it's like when it rains, it pours, that kind of thing. It's, it's like when hardships come, they seem to keep coming for a season. And uh, we know that in God's wisdom, we can definitely help uh, be helped by God's wisdom to have some margin in our lives in, in various ways so that when trials come, we, we don't feel it as brutally as we could, right? We could have some physical margin, um, some financial margin, relationship margin, emotional margin, right? Having space on the edges of our lives to have room to get kind of uh, further out um, is helpful, and if, as a little side note, if you have uh, time to read a book, there's a, a great book by David Murray. It's actually two different books. Uh, one's written for men and one's w- written for women. They're called Reset and Refresh. Um, both are written by David Murray, and then his wife uh, writes a good portion of the one for, for women. Same book, content-wise, just have different illustrations and, and examples and application. But if you need some help thinking through how to build margin in your life, uh, that's a great book. And I bought a few today just to get on the bookshelf, hopefully by next week, um, if you want to pick one up there or you can get it wherever you buy books. But it's a helpful, helpful book. I read it over my sabbatical. Um, very good. I'd recommend it to you. But that's another side note there. Um, the point is, though, that even building in some margin in our lives doesn't guarantee that we're not going to have struggles, difficulties, and trials. Of course, it's, there's no magic pill to take to avoid these things in a world that we live in. But God's word does help us, and it, and it carries us through what we need to hear and deal with in our lives. Um, there's a proverb that I was drawn to this past week. I shared it with the elders at our elder meeting last, last week, and it's Proverbs 12.25, which says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And that is just 
true, right? We, that's, that's what Proverbs do. It points out the truth of situations and anxiety, worry, struggles in our heart of a person weighs us down, but a good word makes us glad. And the good word can be our, us speaking good words to one another, but mostly it is the best word we have to turn to, which is God's word that God speaks to us in all of our anxiety, troubles, worries, difficulties, and he gives us a good word to make us glad. And in God's word, we're reminded that we are not alone. We don't go through life alone. We have a God who walks with us through it all. We, we have a God who loves us and is using all things for our good to make us more like Jesus. And, and these truths can help us. It doesn't mean that everything's all of a sudden magically wonderful, but it does just strengthen us for the days ahead. And this psalm really is, is uh, I think, a really good word for those of us who are in a season of difficulty right now because it reminds us of a few crucial things. And this is just basically how we're going to break this psalm down into three parts. The three things this psalm takes us to is first, who God is for us. We're reminded of who God is in this passage, who he is for us. Secondly, it shows us how God cares about us and for us. And it concludes with where God is taking us. And it's, this is probably not going to be brand new to most of you, but it is that reminder of, of good word from God that we need as we walk through difficult times. So let's look at each of these in turn. We're going to look at the first section is who God is for us. And that's found in verse 1 and 2. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along with me or follow along as I read, it says this. This is a psalm of David. So King David wrote this psalm at some point. We don't have any context from the psalm itself as far as what specifically he was going through. But we know from the content of the psalm he was going through some hard things. And so it says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hand for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Now in this, these two verses, we have a string of analogies or images or symbols of who God is. He's referred to as a rock, a steadfast love, a fortress, a stronghold, on and on. And so I want to be clear on this, that these are analogies. These are helping us understand something about the nature and character of God, of who God is. But these things are not to be confused with God. If you took a rock from outside and said, this is God because the Bible says the Lord is my rock, you have officially broken the first and second commandments. Congratulations. Uh, we can't do that, right? We can't take uh, uh, something in the created world and say, this is God. But what we can do is take things that we understand about the world he has made and the character qualities or the attributes of those things and apply uh, our understanding of that to God's character and nature. So this is, the fancy word for this is anthropomorphisms. Okay, so we're using human languages, anthro, human, uh, and, and then we're taking things that we understand in human life and applying them uh, to the Lord. So just to make that clear, these are anthropomorphisms, they are analogies 
They're not literally, he's not saying that God is a rock or God is a fortress. He's saying that God is like a rock in, a, in certain ways. Okay, we'll talk about what that, what that means. But, let's, so, but before we get into the specifics of the analogies, let me first point out how David personalizes these things. He uses this, this word, my, possessive, personal possessive pronoun in front of each of these attributes. The Lord is my rock, my steadfast love, my fortress. So he's, he's expressing here very, something very important to us, which is that God is these things for us. This is how he relates to us in these various analogies that we have. These are things that we can take and say, this is how God relates to me. This is how David understood it in his, in, in his life. And I believe that these things are all, because we're under the same God, we worship the same Lord, we are, we are able to ourselves apply this as well, that God is these things for us too. So let's roll through them. It won't take very long to look at each of these, but let's just take them one at a time quickly and then we'll, We'll kind of bring it all together there. So the Lord is my rock. This is the first analogy that uh, David uses. What, what about a rock is, is David trying to point out about God? Well, I think what he's saying is this, that God is strong. He is immovable. He is secure. He's solid. He's dependable. We can build our lives on him. This is what Jesus uses in his parable of, of uh, the building a house on the sand versus building a house on a rock, right? That whole picture of if you want some security in your life, we have to build our lives upon a rock, a strong place, a solid place, a dependable place that can withstand. And God himself is that rock for us. Secondly, he uses the, the word it gets translated as steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed and that the Lord is my steadfast love. And other different translations than what I use translate this word slightly differently than steadfast love. But the idea of the Hebrew word hesed is, is that God is faithful in his love for us. He will never leave us or abandon us. This is the Hebrew word that gets applied to God's covenant keeping love. When God makes a covenant with his people, he never breaks that covenant. And he will faithfully love us to the very end. So when David says that the Lord is my steadfast love, he's, a, he's an understanding God to be absolutely faithful to him and to never leave him. Thirdly, he says the Lord is my fortress. This means that God is a strong place of safety where we are protected. That's what a fortress is. We don't have a lot of fortresses in our nation uh, anymore and probably not many even at the beginning. But if you were to go to Europe or, or other ancient places that have been around a lot longer than uh, our understanding of America and our experience here, you'd see fortresses or at least the ruins of fortresses, right? Because you'd have to build something strong enough to protect yourself from an invading force. And David would have understood this clearly in his world uh, that if you were going to be protected from an enemy, you, you needed a place to seek shelter. 
and that's a fortress. It's a strong place, a place built primarily out of stones that aren't easily broken without some kind of explosive device, right, that, which they didn't have in David's day, and where you could be truly protected. And the Lord is being described in this regard as a place of safety where we can be protected. Next, he says he's my stronghold. Now, this is very similar to fortress. This is it's a little bit of a nuance to the word fortress. Um, some translations, the old King James translates this word as high tower. And I think that that's probably a good way of understanding the difference between a fortress and a stronghold. You have a fortress, but even within a fortress, you've got a even securer place, this stronghold. And so the Lord is not just a generic fortress, but he's actually the the true, absolute place of safety within that. Fine. Then he says, my deliverer. So that means that God is the one who is actively working to save us and bring us out of our danger. Think of a fireman entering a burning building to save those who are inside, right? That's a deliverer, someone who goes in there and gets out those in danger. And God is the one that David attributes to being actively at work in saving Then he says, our shield, my shield. So God is standing in front of us. He's taking the blows that come towards us. And lastly, he wraps it up with my refuge. The word refuge is used many times throughout the Psalms in particular. It's probably the most common imagery of God that that we have in the Psalms. This idea of a refuge is is an ultimate place of supreme protection and safety, but not just like a fortress, a place of safety while you hunker down for battle. A refuge is a place where we can truly be removed from battle altogether and rest in our weariness. It's a place of total safety and security. And so the Lord is all of these things and more than these things, but this, this is how David understands the, the relationship he has with the Lord is that God is there to care for him. So what are the common themes in all of these images? Well, the common kind of putting it all together, it's that God is our safety. He's our protection. He's our security. He's our acceptance. He's our, our love. And this matters that God is these things for us, that he is the one to give us protection, safety, deliverance, security, all these things that our hearts desperately need. It matters because when the trials of life come, we have to remember that we're not going through them alone. And and we need to remember who God is when we go through trials because it's so easy in the midst of, of suffering to feel alone or to feel like we've been abandoned or to feel like we're not being protected. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We may not know exactly how God is working in all these things and why he is, is putting these things in our path, but we have the assurances that God is ultimately working in our lives, walking with us and helping us in these ways. So where this psalm goes from here is actually David taking us from who God is into kind of fleshing out how God cares about us. And that's, this is the longest section of the psalm we're going to look at. It's verses 3 through 11, kind of that, that big middle chunk of the psalm. Um, and, and we're going to look at this, but let me just read these verses first, and then we'll step back and kind of look at how David articulates God's care for us. He says, O Lord... 
What is man that you regard him or the son of man that you should think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-stringed harp. I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Okay, so this is, I think, as we, as we kind of step above this a little bit and look at it as a whole, David is talking about two broad aspects of life in which God cares for us. And the first is um, in verse three and four. And I'll summarize these two verses as that God cares for us physically because we're mortal beings with short lives. Welcome to church, everybody. You're mortal and you have a short life. And this is what he says in verse three and four. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So I know none, very few of you want to think about winter. I want to think about winter. So that's why I'm using this. But think about winter and the cold breath that comes out and you see the, the, the vapor and it's there and it's gone. Right? That's what David is, is saying mankind is like. Our lives are just a breath. And so in verse three, David is acknowledging first the wonder that, and the amazement. He's just astonished at the fact that God would actually care for human beings who are so uh, insignificant in both time uh, here on earth and uh, in you know, our ability to... to uh, understand the universe by comparison to the eternal God, that it just blows David's mind that God would give any thought whatsoever to us. And I think that ultimately deep down when we really do rise above the, the innate narcissism in our lives, we know we are small and insignificant compared to God. We're supposed to know that. We should know that. Most of us get it at certain times. I believe that's one of the key reasons why God made a universe that is ever-expanding as far as we understand it today, right? and that always changes how we understand things. But we know we have a universe that is so enormously huge that li- literally we couldn't even get to our next nearest solar system and live because we would not have enough time to survive the journey. Like that's the, the, just the next one over. We can't even, we could never get to. And, and so God made this universe to show us how big he is, how small we are. And we, see, we get a glimpse of that when we see the, the sky filled with stars on a clear night. Or, when, or if we go to one of the national parks and see the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone or Yosemite or whatever it is, and we see these amazing works of God's hand and, and none of us should, and I don't think anyone really does, 
uh, stands at the edge of these amazing things and goes, whoa, I'm awesome. Look at what I've done. <laughs> no one does that because that'd be psychotic, right? We, we would know that that's, in, there's something built into us to understand that we are small. And these things exist to show us that, that God is infinitely larger than us. And yet, he thinks of us. He cares for us. That's the amazement. That, that even though man is like a breath and his days are like a passing shadow, God cares for us. You know, we all, we all get this, I think, that uh, how quickly time goes. And uh, when we were new parents, brand new parents, all, all the older people who had raised kids would tell us, oh, it goes by so fast. Just hang in there, it goes by so fast. And I used to roll my eyes and just be so annoyed at that because, you know, it's like, come on, now, I'm changing diapers at 2 a.m. I don't need you to remind me how fast this goes. I want it to go fast, okay? Let's just speed it up here. But now that I have got a kid who's going into sixth grade and it's like, okay, yeah, no, it goes by fast, like real fast. And, it's, and you guys who have had raised kids and they're out of the house, you know that even better than I do. It's just like, this is going quick. And I, I thought about this too in a di- more morbid way. Uh, when I was last year at my birthday, I realized that I had reached the halfway point if I was to pass away when my grandfather did. I was halfway there. I was like, oh, that puts it into perspective. I'm, I've got maybe another half of this to go, maybe not, maybe less, maybe more, but it's like, yeah, the, the days go by quick. And, and so that's what David is acknowledging here. And yet God cares for us, even though we are mortal and we are frail and, and we have short days. In fact, this is where the New Testament takes us as well. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, the apostle Paul acknowledges these things too. And he, he says, uh, in, in verse 16 through 18, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, meaning our, our bodies, our inner self, meaning our souls, is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, meaning the sufferings of life on earth, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, but not to the things that are unseen, uh, or look not to the things that are seen, excuse me, and not to the things that are, and to the things that are unseen. Sorry, I got that all backwards. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what does the Apostle Paul remind us? He's saying, this is very similar to what David is saying, and that is that our outer selves, our human bodies, are limited and short-lived in the grand scheme of eternity. But our inner selves, who we are being transformed by Jesus, is being made to be like him more and more each day. So God cares for us in our physical lives, our mortal lives. He, he isn't ignorant of that. He's not unconcerned with that. He walks with us through it. But there's a second way that God cares for us in this passage. And it's verse 5 through 11. We're not going to look at all of these verses in depth. I want to just highlight a couple of them. But here's what I think. Again, David's writing as the king of Israel in the context of a war, in the context of battling a foreign power. But what is the deeper principle for us who are not in that position? Um, 
And I think the answer is that God cares for us, not only physically, but he also cares for us emotionally, particularly when people turn against us. So obviously our situation will not be identical to David's, but we can all understand some of the angst and emotional pain that David feels. And let me just highlight two things here. Uh, Verse eight and verse 11 he repeats, he says the same thing twice. And so I think that that's, that's there for a reason. He repeats it word for word practically uh, because that's something that needs to stick out to us. At the very end of verse seven, he says, deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners, verse eight, who speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And then again in verse 11, he says, rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Verse eight and 11, I think get to the the heart of David's struggle here. And that is that the people who he is uh, battling with are not just there to, you know, be a military power, but they are actually people who are lying and spreading falsehoods about him. And I think you understand this, and I understand this, that when people who we know or even don't know spread lies about us or say false things about us, that is an emotionally painful thing. It hurts, right? We understand that. You get that probably to some degree or another. That you, you're just perplexed by, as you think through your life, like, why would that person have said that about me? Like, it's so untrue. It's so unfair. And and I get that. I, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I, I get that part of the job is to kind of be criticized, and that's okay. I've got, the t- I've got tough skin. I can handle criticism. But, but the stuff that really hurts is like when somebody just flat out lies about something that happened. And then I'm like, see, now I've got a lot of things you can be critical of, but just making stuff up, that just stinks. Like that, that really hurts, right? And so when, when we've been through these things, it's like that, that's the stuff that really kills us. And yet God is the one who's actively at work in caring for us. Remember, he is our rock. He is our fortress. He's our steadfast love. All those things at the beginning of this psalm is what reminds us of what he's doing for us in the midst of being uh, hurt or criticized or lied about or whatever, whatever the emotional toil is. I, I also... I think it's important for us to know that God cares for us in those moments and that God knows the truth and that God will vindicate or justify us in his time and in his way. And it may not be how we expect him to or want him to or when, when we want him to, but we trust the Lord in these things. I also think there's a, there's a point here that needs to be emphasized and that is on the flip side of this that we can do ourselves a lot of good by actually approaching hurtful situations head on. Rather than letting it stew inside of us and and simmer away and create a, a root of bitterness, we need to actually bring the things, the sinful things that have been done against us. We're not talking about the quirks of personality that, you know, those, those things we should just let, let roll off the back. But if someone does something that's truly of wrong to us and has truly wounded us, 
we should speak to them about it. And there's a couple things we need to know. You need to talk it out because nobody can read your mind. And so we walk into the, Crystal and I counsel people all the time about this, particularly younger college age students who are just frustrated about whatever their roommate was doing to them. It's like, we will always ask the question, have you told them that this is bothering you? And they'll say, no. I'm like, then why do you think they would know that it's bothering you? Because they can't read your mind. They don't know what you're thinking. You know what you're thinking and you think everyone else should know what you're thinking, but they don't. Sorry, they don't. So you have to tell them. And when you do, that's uncomfortable and difficult at times, right? But, but you can clear the air and you can at least say your piece. Even if the situation doesn't instantly fix itself, at least you've done what you are able to do in that situation. And the, the reality is, is that we're called to do this in the Bible. The Bible tells us to do this in Matthew 18. It tells us how to resolve conflict by going to the person individually, one-on-one, the one who has sinned against you and telling them what they've done that has hurt you. And if they receive that well, then Jesus says, awesome, then you've won your brother or sister. That's great. That's the goal. And sometimes there's a situation where they won't receive that well. And so in that case, you bring a couple people with you and you talk to them as a small group And there may still be hard-heartedness even after that. So then you take it to the next level, which would be the elders of the church and have them help get involved. Um, But the reality is, is that the first step is almost always neglected because we just don't want to deal. And yet God gives us his word to show us how to resolve conflict. And we just ignore it most of the time. And what we would rather do is just kind of talk around the issue by gossiping or slandering or lying. Uh, and, and we would just rather do that than actually do it the way God calls us to do it. But here's what I want to point you to, though. In, in Matthew 18, there's an amazing, un, it's like, it's a verse that I never connected to this issue of conflict resolution, but that's exactly what it's talking about. In verse 20 of Matthew 18, Jesus says, You've probably heard these words. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That is in the context of the same thing Jesus has been talking about, which is resolving conflict between two or three people. And he says, where two or three are gathered together to resolve conflict in my name, I am there among them. We've taken that passage and we've applied it to worship services or prayer meetings or, or to, to whatever random thing we, we want to do. It's like, okay, here we go. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't have any application to those spaces, but that's not the context that Jesus is using this in. He's not talking about getting two or three people together and just praying together, although that's good. He's talking about how he is with us in the efforts of ministering, healing, and reconciliation. So where two, that is the the one who's done the wrong and the one who's confronting the wrong, if they come together to resolve this in Jesus' name, he's with them. Or where the third person or fourth person gets involved, then Jesus can work in that too. But the comfort in this, and this is why we need to be so so, uh, mindful not to shy away from, from 
having hard conversations is because Jesus promises to be with us in those conversations. He cares about us, our emotions and our reconciliation. So I think we we need to take that to heart because Jesus is with us in those efforts and Jesus will work it all out in the way he wants to work it out. Okay, well, so many of our anxieties and worries and struggles, I think they really boil down to these two categories we've just looked at. The fact that we're mortal beings with failing bodies, right? As we age, particularly, and our bodies begin to wind down, we start to have the anxieties of health concerns. We start to have the anxieties of disease that might creep in. We have, we have this reality, and this is a huge struggle in our lives. And we also have the huge struggle throughout our lives of relational conflicts. And I think these are the two big categories that produce worry in us that the Lord is trying to speak to and say to us, listen, I'm with you in these things. I'm with you. I am your rock and your fortress. I am your, for, your steadfast love. I am here in the midst of these things with you. All right, last section, the, the last few verses, verse 12 through 15, shows us where God is taking us. This is a prayer of David's. And here's what he says. My, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, producing, oh, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. I I say this is where God is taking us because this last section of of the psalm is a prayer for the future of Israel from David's lips. It's a hope-filled prayer. It's a prayer that David wants to see God provide sons and daughters with a good life. He wants to see the, the, the bins of, of uh, the, the crops filled to the brim. He wants to see the, the animals producing uh, more animals without failure, without any problems in this. And he's, he's just praying that God would do this. Now, here's why I say it's a future thing. Ultimately, it's a future thing. It's not to say that we shouldn't pray for these things here and now and ask God to bless our lives and to bless our crops and to bless our animals and bless our children and all those things. That is a good thing to do. It's a right thing to do. However, in a fallen world, we know that these things will not be true at all times. We know that that the sheep will not always bring forth 10,000s in our fields. We know that the cattle will not always bear uh, young without mishap or failure. We know that, that the granaries will not always be full. We understand that in the context of a broken world. And yet it's not wrong to pray for those things. It is wrong to believe that God is not good, for, good to us 
when those things do not come to pass in a fallen world. What these, what these requests of David ultimately point us to is the eternal joys we will have as we experience perfection in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will bring about this very thing. He will answer this prayer. It will not fully be realized in our lives right here and now, but it will be realized in eternity as Jesus establishes his kingdom forever. And and we need to keep our eyes ultimately on that glory, that future glory. When we go through the sufferings of this life, we need to remember what 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, which we read in just a few minutes ago, that, that it is this, this uh, eternal weight of glory that we have to look forward to rather than this, this temporary time of suffering. It is to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal weight of the glory of God that we will all have in our lives as we trust in Christ Jesus. As we believe in Christ and are ushered into his kingdom, we will know these things to be true. And as we suffer through this life, as we go through the hardships of this life, we need to keep our eyes on the ultimate end, and that is the kingdom of God and the new heavens and the new earth. We may die before that day comes to fruition, but when we die, we'll be with the Lord and then we will be ushered into that fruition. Or we may live to see the day Christ returns. We don't know the time of those things. That's not for us to know. But we do know that regardless of whether we pass away before that day comes on this planet, we will have it in eternity. And whether we live to see it, we will be we will be right there with Jesus. That's the whole theme of 1 Thessalonians, which we talked about last year, uh, which we walked through last fall. And that's what Paul makes the point. It doesn't really matter whether you're alive or dead when Christ returns because it's all going to be good for you if you're a believer in Jesus. All right, let's land this plane here. When, when difficulties come, what are we to do? The psalm gives us a pattern. We remember who God is, We remember his character, who he is, what he's done. We remember that God loves us and is with us through all of our struggles. And we remember where God is taking us, which is to himself. And most of all, above all, we remember that it is Jesus Christ who brings these things to fruition. Jesus is the fullness of of God. He is the one who has fully accomplished all that God has promised to do. His life, his death, and his resurrection is the very thing that gives us all of this hope in the nature, work, and future we have in Jesus. And so let's lean on Christ for his strength, for his love and care. Let us, let us continue to cast our cares on him because he cares for you knowing that as we do so, he will carry us through. He will carry us through the shadow of the valley of death and will bring us to an eternal home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness in our lives. And I pray, Father, for each person in this room. You know what they have walked into this room carrying, what kind of weight of anxieties they're carrying in their lives. Would you, by your spirit, seal the truths of your word for their hearts and for mine? I pray that we would 
lean into who you are today as a church and as, as people who love you. Pray you would help us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us courage in the midst of all the hard things we go through in our lives. And we pray we would keep trusting you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.